Welcome to the first episode ever of our new pop-up talk show. In this show, we are going to be interviewing founders and operators who are building tech companies that help people to do what they love for a living. I'm your host, Lee Jin, along with Nathan Bashez. And we started this show because, frankly, I have always wanted to become a YouTube influencer and live out my passion economy thesis. But putting that aside, um, oh, yeah, we're going to take this Zoom recording, chop it up into Quibi-like slices and put it onto YouTube and hopefully become YouTube influencers. We have a specific thesis around the six to seven minute format. Mm -hmm. um, but putting aside our own personal aspirations, we also want to encourage innovation in the passion economy and to help aid the world in becoming a place where people can unite their passions with their profession. And hopefully by shining a light on the innovators and thinkers in the space, we can help inspire more founders and creators who are forging their own paths. So our first guest ever for this inaugural episode is Sahil Lavingia, the founder and CEO of Gumroad, which is an online platform that enables creators to sell products directly to consumers. So Sahil started the business in 2011 when he was only 19 years old, which is insane. And today it's used by over 40,000 creators, has paid out over $300 million to those creators who are using it to sell things like films, courses, music, books, memberships, and more. And it's mostly used to sell digital content. And the platform encompasses a bunch of functionalities like um, payment processing, file hosting and delivery, marketing and communications, as well as the actual consumption experience for a number of different verticals. Um, and just a quick plug that this show is brought to you today by the Everything Bundle, which you can find Ooh. at everything.substack.com. Um, it contains so much amazing business analysis and strategy content that you guys should all subscribe to. Um, and if you want to read more of my thoughts, I'm at lee.substack.com. And a quick note before we dive in that the structure will be for the first 30 minutes or so, Nate and I will have a discussion with Sahil. And then for the rest of the time, we'll switch over to audience questions. So if you guys think of any questions that you have as we're talking, um, just put it in the chat and we'll pick and choose different questions to answer for the latter half of the show. So without further ado, let's dive in. Um, so Sahil, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your taking the time. You're welcome. That was the best. That was the best description I've ever intro ever. I've oh, wow. Ever. Very professional. Thank that you. Was that, that was my first time ever giving an intro. So I'm really Good glad time. it can only go downhill from here. Um, so the first question that I have for you is, so you started Gumroad in 2011, almost 10 years ago, back when even the word creator or influencer wasn't even really a word that people used. Um, and so can you just help us understand and trace how the creator landscape has evolved and developed since then. Yeah, totally. So yeah, when I started Gumroad, the thesis was sort of really quickly that people were building their audiences directly to their, you know, basically owning their audience, right? Like on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Pinterest, Instagram, email, blog, et cetera, instead of working. And this is before, as you mentioned, creator influencers. So I was thinking about it like musicians, filmmakers, you know, authors to, uh, specifically, right? And teachers potentially as well. Um, so, you know, the label was going to get disintermediated by, by Twitter or the radio or the record store or whatever. Um, 
things didn't exactly go the way that I expected, but that was sort of the origin of the idea and why I was excited about it was, you know, first you sort of democratize this connection. And then once you have the connection, you can sort of disintermediate these middlemen and sort of sell directly, take a lot more of the proceeds home. Uh, and our, yeah, like, so the, the, the creator, specifically the word was kind of interesting is there are two companies that we looked at for our sort of messaging. Like who do we really struggled in the early days? Like, what do we call these people? Mm-hmm. Uh, do they, are they cr- creatives? Are they artists? Are they entrepreneurs? Um, do we just sort of reference like sort of say musicians, designers, writers every single time, which is what we initially did. Uh, and then over time, YouTube kind of adopted the creator uh, term and Kickstarter was the other one. I think Kickstarter was really the one that kind of pioneered that kind of like, these are creators. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're like, cool, awesome, creator. Like we can now, obviously everyone kind of knows, which is great because it makes our lives easy. We just say this word and everyone kind of gets what that means. Um, but there, there's, yeah, I think the biggest shift has just been the growth of it. You know, we really anticipated this kind of hyper growth. We're like, this is going to happen tomorrow. And it just took so long to really get to some sort of sense of maturity and scale. Uh, you know, Patreon launch in 2012 or 20, I think 2012 teachable, um, launched, I think in 2014 or 2015, it took a long time to, and even those businesses, it took a long time to get to that, that kind of scale. I think people kind of underestimate how long it can take to build an audience, uh, and how long it can take to monetize that audience. If you think about even the life cycle of a startup, it takes five, six, seven, eight years. Right. And so when you start with creators who are now finally being on the internet and, and building their audiences on, on social media, it can take years and years and years to have a thousand followers, you know, and, and you wrote that great postly about a hundred true fans. And I think that's super, super like really uh, savvy because I think people underestimate that like uh, Kevin Kelly's a thousand true fans, like that many people paying you 10 bucks, even a month uh, to sort of be a six figure income is a lot of people like that. Yeah. You know, you read the S ones of like Slack um, and it's just like 40% was from like 600 customers or, you know, it's just like, a, like it's, it's right. hard to really get to scale in terms of how many, and I think people look at Shopify and their million small, medium businesses or Facebook, or Google, or whatever, but just like the amount of time it takes Shopify is a 22 something year old company or something like that. You know, it takes a long time to, to reach all of these people. Um, and so I think that's the big, a big shift. And I think just the educational piece, I think people understanding, I think the, the, the assumption we had was like labels are going to get disintermediated because musicians can now sell directly to their audience. Right. I think one thing we didn't realize we kind of undervalued what a label does. And I think everything is actually a really good example of this where they're super savvy about you. You're not just a good, you, you can't just be a good writer. That's not enough. Right. You have to like find the audience. You have to do all the business stuff. You have to figure out pricing. You have to build a brand like this beautiful logo. I don't have it, but we'll be here. You can get um, one if you want it. We'll, we'll hook that up. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's interesting, Sahil, that you you mentioned that that even the term creator has become so ubiquitous over the past decade, and broader awareness of the creator market has greatly expanded. Um, and this market is much larger than it used to be, especially now that social platforms are have reached such large scale. I think the word creator a lot of people really struggle to pin down what that means. And so definitionally, I love to hear what creator means to you or how you would define the term. Yeah, the way I think about creator, and you mentioned in the beginning, like creators and founders, like this is for creators and founders. And I think that's really interesting because I I really believe like a founder is actually kind of like a subset of a creator. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
And I think the way I define creator is someone who makes stuff and makes money by sort of charging for that stuff effectively. It's an incredibly broad term to me, but it's really anyone that makes money to make more of what they do. And they don't have to do something and get paid for it and then do something else that they love doing. It's like, it's the merging of those two things. So you can write content and get paid for that content, which is very different than, than a lot of the folks that sort of pre, pre this sort of passion economy would basically have a day job where they write about baseball and then right. they'd have a little thing on the side where they write about video games. And it's like, no, now you can actually write about video games, get paid. And I, oh, yeah. you don't have to tell else. <laughs> Your <laughs> you definition know? is very aligned with our logo of like you, you do things you love and you get this money is, from it. This is very true. Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to original version. Earn interest on your interests. Yes. <laughs> I, like oh, I that. love that. I love that. Yeah. I posed this question to my Twitter audience. Um, maybe last year I was like, what does everyone think creator actually means? And people sort of gave their thoughts and the responses. And it was crazy how varied they were. Some people took a really broad view of what a creator was. They were like, it's literally anyone that creates anything, like anyone who posts anything on Facebook, anyone who posts any picture on Instagram, anyone who maybe even takes a picture on their photo roll would be considered a creator. And I think that de that definition, although true in some level, because they are creating something from nothing, I think it's too broad to be useful. Like, mm. I think, yeah, that might be true, but like, it, it makes everything sort of meaningless if it encompasses everyone. So instead, when I use the term creator, I think there's an element of intentionality behind it. Like, is it someone who is creating something with the purpose of building up an audience such that they can one day monetize that? Um, so I think that's very much aligned with your definition too. Yeah. It's interesting before we move on from this question really quick. Uh, to me how as sort of like formats have become more fluid and everything has just sort of collapsed into digital distribution that these generic words like creator and content have become necessary and useful. Whereas before, yeah, you're just a writer because you publish books and by a publishing company that showed up in a bookstore or you're just a journalist who wrote articles that showed up in newspapers that showed up on your doorstep every morning. And like now it's all just kind of like one thing and they're all mixed together and fluid. And so it's just kind of like content and creators, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, I, I wonder, like, if a lot of people are averse to the word content because they're like, oh, it devalues it. It makes it a commodity. And to me, it's kind of useful, especially for people that are doing format sort of genre bending stuff. It's kind of like, well, what is it? It's not, it's not a clear thing. Well, at some level, it's content. And I'm a creator as, a, as an example. Totally. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about, so you wrote this blog post about a year ago, which made huge waves. And it was about your failure to build a billion dollar business. And it was really honest and vulnerable about how Gumroad didn't become a wildly successful business per VC standards. It didn't grow 20% month on month. Um, and for context for folks in the audience, um, Gumroad had raised about like $8 million in VC funding. And then within three years had to lay off a lot of its staff. Um, and this blog post sort of chronicles that journey of building the company and how you made peace with the ultimate outcome of what Gumroad is today, um, which, I mean, I thought the piece was so refreshing and honest and people don't often talk about failures, especially in the tech world. Um, and I'm curious, like, why did you write it? What was your goal in putting that out there into the world? Yeah, I really wrote it uh, as a reflection. I, I honestly wrote it as a closing chapter of the Gumroad journey. I felt like I had built Gumroad into a business 
it sort of matured to what it became, which was like a nice, people would call it a lifestyle business or just a small business, a software business that, um, you know, makes a few million bucks a year, pays a, a you know, a team salaries. And, and that's great. Uh, but it took me a long time to get to that point. And I was so tied up in this sort of startup VC billion dollar outcome identity, the unicorn chasing sort of identity that I just didn't tell anyone. I was like, by the time I'd become comfortable with it, it was like probably three years, three or four years. And so I was just having conversations with people and people were like, what happened? Like, you know, like I just, I never figured out what happened. And I'm like, Oh, I can tell you, I'm happy to tell you what happened. I'm actually in a good place now. I can talk about it. It took me a while. And then I just kept having some of those conversations. I had them with my mom who I never really kind of talked to do this thing with, uh, with, you know, friends from high school and, and, and former coworkers and all sorts of people. Some people thought Gummer was dead. You know, some people thought I had sold the business. And so it was really just like, I need to write what had happened, sort of just chronicle it. And then, you know, it wasn't like, these are the 15 things you can learn or whatever. It was just like, this is what happened. You know, this is my path and it is what it is. And now I can move on. And then the sort of ironically sort of sort of actually maybe sort of made Gumroad a lot more interesting for folks. Yeah. The opposite happened. You didn't move on. It was, I know, no, like crap kind of blew up Gumroad <laughs> in some ways. Right. And that wasn't the only reason Gumroad obviously has a really high degree of product market fit. It's just, I think something that's so interesting about the VC model is like, there's a lot of businesses that have really good product market fit, but not really good timeline of the growth. It's like how much people love it. How many of those people exist and like how long it takes for the business to grow to reach a lot of them are like independent variables totally. And like you need all three of them to be like an amazing VC hit and Gumroad had like two probably. (laughs) I would say the third one is how much you can sort of make per person that you acquire, right? right? Like Shopify business versus a Gumroad creator are sort of very different potentially. And that can sort of dramatically change the, the scale of the business, even though you might have a similar amount of customers or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I also recall earlier this year after COVID hit that you tweeted out some growth charts about Gumroad, like COVID really accelerating the growth trajectory of Gumroad. And so do you think this is something where maybe the business, I mean, the business got the idea right, but the timing wrong and like now is actually the moment for a business like Gumroad where you see like a, a VC-like growth trajectory ahead of you? Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I think one of the things I've learned is it's so hard to predict. I think it's sort of obvious in hindsight that like Uber was going to be a $60 billion company and Stripe was going to be a big company. And, and then these other, but like I, I saw a screenshot of Stripe in the early days when they first launched their marketplace business uh, after the Postmates uh, sort of exit. And there's like five out of, uh, you know, half the companies, I don't even know what they were, but they were like, they're notable enough. It was like Postmates, Lyft, and then like three or four companies that I, I don't even know. And so I think people just don't know what's going to work, what's not going to work. I think that's a big part of it. I just like COVID, right? Like kind of came out of nowhere. I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful that this is sort of a maturing industry that like it might, you know, it's five, 10 years from now. It's, we might look back and be like, oh, it was too early or, or it was early, you know? And it's like, there's so much more here. Um, like Jessica mentioned in the, in the chat that like Gumroad was sort of like maybe, I wouldn't say started the wave, but, you know, sort of like came before some of these other, other companies but even before Gummer, there were sort of other other things, right? There was Bandcamp and CD Baby and like uh, eJunkie, if folks even remember that. Like there's always like, and probably before then, like there was other things that are like ways to, you know, like, so it's just, I think it's it's all relative. Um, I'm really hopeful. I'm really excited about where it's going. This is the first year we'll probably double 
year over year since 2014 when we were sort of 10 times smaller. Um, so we'll see. I think, you know, like there is some really good growth coming and I'm hopeful that there's sort of all these people getting online and getting sort of in this new remote work era, working from home, making money online, like all these things are, are sort of accelerating that. So I'm, I'm really hopeful, but honestly, I just don't know. I'm, I'm always sort of trying to preserve my optionality, right? Where like, if it, if it does do, I can do that. If it, if it doesn't, but it's, I should sort of be able to react to, to all of those sort of situations. I think the danger that Gumroad fell into, uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with, with, with raising venture. I think some people took that message away from the article, which wasn't the intent. I think there's venture is a tool that people can and should use. Uh, and it can be a great tool. Uh, and, and I got a lot of value out of it. But we raised like eight million bucks, as you mentioned, sort of like pre-revenue, effectively, right? Um, mm. Super early, and so you're kind of locked into a path before you even know like what's going to happen when you when you kind of like when you launch. Like, are you going to you know? Uh, and a lot of investors thought it was going to go to the moon. I thought it was going to go to the moon. Uh, it didn't. Uh, but you just don't know, right? And so you have to kind of just like that's that's a sort of a, a dynamic there. Like Gumroad now is actually like we could sell for like twenty, fifty million bucks. So that's probably roughly what it's worth right now if I sold it, uh, though I have no plan to. Um, and that's actually not a terrible outcome for the, for the seed investors. Yes, it took 10 years, but, but so it's all, it's all, yeah, you know, it's, it's just sort of understanding the, the dynamics of the business that you're, you're in and, and, and preserving, you're just knowing like, you know, what the, what the options are, right. Going forward. I think it's really important. Yeah. It's amazing that, that you mentioned that Gumroad is growing faster than it ever has since 2014. I've actually heard similar stats from other creator businesses that have been around for a long time as well. Like COVID basically accelerated the business so much that they saw growth rates that they hadn't seen since like year one or two of the business. Um, Which is why I think now is such a amazing time for founders in that are building businesses in the passion economy because you have this convergence of like once in a lifetime events where so many people unfortunately are out of a job and looking for new ways of making a living through online based means i mean that's all there is to make a living today like there's there's no more offline jobs unless you're an essential worker and i think the second factor expediting the development of this whole ecosystem is the fact that I think people have realized that that social contract that they used to have with a single employer has been broken. Like you can no longer just trust that employer to provide for you forever for your entire life, as long as you're loyal and stay there for, you know, 30 years. Um, I think people have now realized that even if they are loyal and do great work for their employer, you never know what kind of crazy event could happen that could lead to being out of a job. And so that model of just tying your whole life to one single job is actually really risky. And I think people are going to be shifting a mind, their mindset to um, a place where it's actually desirable to have diversified income. It's, it's a good thing to have side hustles rather than that's sort of pejorative and that's less preferable to having just one job. Yeah, I think that's totally correct. And I think when, you, when we got rid of our office in 2015, because we needed to, because we would die otherwise. And it really is a, a, it's probably a shift a lot of people. It's sort of obvious now, but like when you're not in an office, it's like, well, why do you have to work nine to five? Why do you have to have lunch at this time? Like some people work great in the morning. Some people work great at night and you, you might work four hours, then work on your own thing in the middle and then work on, you know, on, on your day job again. And I think, I mean, I'm sure there are people that will work two day jobs, <laughs> right? Like uh, a three or four, like, 
when you don't have that sort of like you can only your physical body can only be in one office at a time right but when you get rid of that i think the expectations around work scheduling uh allowing folks to sort of pursue side hustles and 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 all of these things should be more socially uh, culturally acceptable and common because yeah you want you kind of want it's like almost a hedge on your own traditional career, right? It's like, oh, if I get laid off or if this happens or whatever, I have this other thing that I'm doing. Um, and that's great. We encourage everyone at Gumroad to sort of have these. Things. I mean, it's great for us because we get the empathy for our customers that way, right? And so, um, you know, I, I sort of, and I have my own side hustles too, and that's fine. And I'm not, I think that's the nice thing about not trying to build a unicorn sort of business anymore is I can sort of be upfront with people and be like, yeah, I'm doing, like, raising this fund and I'm doing this other thing and I'm writing a book and like, it's mm-hmm. okay. Because, you know, I'm not trying to sort of make your equity worth millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, You know, it is what it is again, right? Like join, as long as the expectations are communicated, like uh, you can make that decision of, is that what you want or not? And and, and not everyone wants the same things. Yep, absolutely. Um, I want to switch gears and ask you a few questions about the creators that you're serving. So... I think of Gumroad as being somewhere in between being a platform and an aggregator per Ben Thompson's you know, definition, where a platform is something that enables someone to build a business, but is really invisible by itself, and an aggregator being really a destination that is trying to intermediate the relationship between um, a company and like all the third parties that are in the ecosystem. So Gumroad is sort of in between because it's not entirely white label people's storefronts on Gumroad all start with gumroad.com slash something. Um, But it's also not really a marketplace where people are discovering new creators. So can you talk a little bit about strategically, why did you make that decision? And like, who do you think of as being the end customer of Gumroad? Yeah. I mean, it really started because I wanted to build sort of the minimal viable product. And for me, it was like, I want to sell this thing on social media. And so I just, all I need is a single page, like a bit.ly link that I could give people. They visit it. They see some information. They already know who I am. Like most of the marketing is actually in the tweet, not in the page. So they just need to kind of mostly a credit card form and a price, uh, right. you know, buy one man and receipt that goes ding, ding, and it looks nice and it's cool. And then you, down, you hit download and you leave. That was kind of the MVP. It's actually not very different <laughs> to what happens today. And so we're slowly kind of, so we really started with that sort of, closer to the platform side. Um, and we're slowly now moving more into the aggregation sort of aggregator kind of model. Uh, I think mostly because creators seem to want it. A lot of folks, especially who are getting started, they need help. They need discovery. They want more of that. Uh, you're starting to see Shopify start getting into that, which kind of shop pay. And, um, and, and it's interesting to, uh, you know, just, uh, we have something called uh, Gummer discover teachable just launched something uh, as well. Um, in that vein. And so I think there's a lot of, I think that the truth is this is all so new that people don't really know is that even valuable because when I talked early when I started talking to creators, the big creators don't want any of that stuff. They're like, no, I just want a low fee and I want white label because I already have my audience. I already have this. Yeah. I already know how to do right. it. Uh, and then the, the, the sort of new, newer, fresh people are like, I know I need all that stuff. Like I'd much rather pay 30% and like give it to Apple and Apple will connect me with people. Right. And so you're, you're trying to really figure out like who, who you're for and, and also who you're competitive with. Because I think one of the, one of the wrenches that was, was sort of thrown into the wheel of Gumroad uh, was, was sort of how easy it was to kind of build your own stuff. Stripe came out um, uh, in 2011 and then, you know, now there are all these website builders and Webflow and, 
uh, WordPress is, is, has all these crazy things that you can do and WooCommerce. And, and so like, it's hard to build a pure platform because you basically can sort of be outcompeted with someone just saying, Hey, there's some open source stuff. You can plug these three things together. You can use, you know, MailChimp plus, uh, car.co plus Stripe connect and you have your own little thing and you don't actually need right. to people and so the creator i think a lot of the creator economy companies the passion economy companies are, are really trying to figure out how to sort of stay valuable and 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 what the actual correct take rate is um because you know the, the other thing is aggregators take a sort of a very different kind of have a very different business model right where they typically take, take up to 30 percent or sometimes up to 75 percent if you're like amazon uh kindle and stuff like that kdp um and then the payments sort of sort of platforms sort of take very low, right? Very sort of like two, three, four. They're closer to kind of like payments companies in that sense, but they have a lot more scale. And and so it's, it's I think people are still trying to figure out like Patreon went through some pricing shifts and was trying to figure that out. And they haven't really invested in discovery, but I just saw that they added a search bar to their front page. So I think no one knows, honestly, like we're, we're it's not as easy to be like, oh, Shopify did this. Let's just copy paste you know, it'll work, it'll work for us too. Um, or Uber did this, like, let's copy paste. It's going to work for us too. It's such a new market that like, we don't really know what the right business model is and how to solve the graduation problem. And, and like, and all of these things, we're all trying to figure it out um, as, as we go. Yeah. I think there's a lot of companies that have had a very similar origin story of solving a problem for creators and then some more and some less successfully backing into aggregation. So like YouTube, it used to just be hard to send someone a video. You'd like send them a file and they'd be like, oh, I got to download real player. Like <laughs> originally it was very similar to the original motivation for Gumroad where it's like, it's just hard to sell someone like a thing over the internet. Um, Substack, it's hard to set up a newsletter that like also has a good website and like to make money from that thing. Um, Medium, right? Like back in the day, it was just like, where are you going to publish? Set up a whole blog. What if I just want to write a post? Like all right. these companies have very similar origins. And um, I mean, Patreon, same thing, right? Um, but um, of all the ones I just listed, I think YouTube has probably been the only one that's really truly made the shift to like aggregation um, and controlling the content, I think is really key to that. Um, I'm curious what y'all think about like sort of how to, how, like how companies that start out as like come for the tool, stay for the network actually shift to stayed for the network. Yeah. I think the hardest thing, and I would love to do that. Like that's a shift I would love to make if I'm confident that we can make it. I think the biggest question I have is when you become an aggregate, when you become a destination site, you are now competing for, I'm bored, where do I go? And so you're effectively, Gumroad is now not only competing with all the sort of competitors that are top of mind for folks, but now we're competing with YouTube, right? We're now like the place where like, I'm bored, I, I could go to Netflix, I could, I could go to YouTube, or I could go to Gumroad and visit my content library and discover new creators. And, and it just will, and I think that, honestly, I think if, if I already guess five years from now, Gumroad is going to look a lot more like YouTube or TikTok even than, yeah. than, than sort of like a, a sort of a, a SaaS kind of tool uh, over time uh, because I think that's super, super important. And, and, and the, other, the other thing I wanted to add that I forgot about is one thing that's been interesting about the landscape changing is that actually creators want more of that over time. As your brand develops, like now people, like we don't, we're like, oh, we don't want to put like a search bar on the top of every product page because that's yours, right? We don't want it. But now creators are like, we, I, actually, I, I want that. I would turn it on if that had the option because I actually want to be part of this thing and this movement. And so that's like kind of this interesting dynamic where in the beginning, if you're on Medium, if you're on Substack, if you're on 
uh, YouTube. It's like, I just want people to come to my video. I don't want related videos. I don't want any of that. They're all competitive with me, right? It's like my attention. I want this, their attention. And it's now actually like, there's, it's much more sort of wanted and acceptable to sort of be like, no, I, I understand. Like, I want to bring people here, but then people are going to bring, you know, their audience to me. And it's like, it's going to be a win, win, win for everybody, the platform and other people in the audience and me and everything else like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's sort of fascinating, fascinating transition. So we'll try that. We'll probably say, Hey, on the free plan, like this is now there, if you're on the paid one, you can get rid of it and just see how, how many people value that and, and how many people on the, on the pro plan turn it on, <laughs> you know, uh, and kind of get a sense of like, cause I, I, there's so many people, especially with the Gumroad sort of brand, they're like, no, I want people to know that I'm on Gumroad. Uh, and that's like a sort of a value add, um, for them. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. I think the other sort of thing that I'll throw in there is when you are focused on commerce, the, one of the sort of like the gorillas in the room is this app store 30% for digital content. Right. And so it becomes really difficult to compete with, uh, Netflix, YouTube, all these native experiences when you're a sort of premium content only service. Right. And you, and Gumroad specifically isn't a subscription billing thing. So it's, you know, it's mostly sort of one-off products. So effectively Apple's like, you can consume the content. You can't buy any of the content. You, everyone has to have an account. It's like just, it, it, and so you lose a lot of that. No one's going to open up the Gumroad app and be able to discover content, which is such a huge thing, right? More people spend time on their phones than their, than their desktop. Gumroad is still effectively kind of like a desktop experience, right? Um, and so that's kind of like another thing that um, I'm sort of really interested in following, especially with the sort of recent fallout around hay and all that kind of stuff that um, I'm hopeful, like that could be another kind of COVID in terms of just like radically changing what means huge in, you know, overnight effectively. Yeah. I, I think this whole line of thinking is really interesting because I, I feel like when I was at E16Z, there were so many companies that came and pitched the whole um, come for the tools, stay for the network vision of, you know, day one, they were pitching a tool, but ultimately they had aspirations to become a network. Um, and I feel like instances that I can think of where companies actually successfully made that transition are so few. Like it's actually tremendously difficult to make that transition. I think it requires actually very distinct DNA and expertise in building product. Um, And I think especially in the creator realm, like a lot of creators are very sensitive because over the years they've seen the bad behavior on the part of different aggregator platforms, taking their audiences, feeling like they've, they've taken their audiences and directed them to other people or, you know, disintermediated them away from the end audience that has expressly desired to follow them. And people feel like they aren't reaching the same size audience that they used to be on the algorithmic feeds, et cetera. So I think there is increased sensitivity around like making that tool to network transition more so than ever before. Yeah. It's, 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 and that's why I think it's so important to do it incrementally because yeah, there's so much fear around it. And I totally understand that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe the last question before I turn it over to the audience questions is, um, I think there's a really interesting discussion that I'd love to have and get your thoughts on around the horizontal versus vertical approach to serving creators and what you think is more interesting or where the bigger opportunities lie. 
Um, so to elaborate on this, I think of a horizontal platform for serving creators as being something like Gumroad, which um, serves many different types of creators, or Patreon that serves any type of creator that wants to turn on monetization, versus a vertical specific platform being something like Substack, um, the paid newsletter platform, or something like Pietra, which is a uh, you know, helping influencers sell physical products and design jewelry or home goods or accessories and sell that to their audience. Um, so do you have any thoughts on horizontal versus vertical approaches? Yeah, I think this is honestly potentially a, a mistake that Gumroad made in the early days because we were sort of trying to enter this new thing. And then we were also not really capable of defining it specifically, which as you mentioned, like when it's so broad, it sort of loses meaning. Uh, and so I think it would have been good. I think probably in hindsight, we would have picked a more specific sort of use case and built specifically for that, gone really, really good at that, probably like technical eBooks or something like that. Mm -hmm. which was a lot of our early sort of uh, use case, uh, sort of success stories and case studies. Um, and then sort of gone sort of, you know, horizontal slowly over time. Uh, but the, the reason that we didn't was that we were so, we were like, there's no reason not, like it's the same software, like you're building like you build, uh, you know, Gumroad for eBooks and you build Gumroad for films, you're changing a few things here and there. You're changing some words, right? Uh, maybe changing the layout or something like that. Uh, but it's effectively like the same kind of thing. And the network effect of like having credit cards saved and like all these insights that we could pull from each other. Like, I think it was just, it was like, we're going to fight that. We're going to, even though it might seem dumb and like a lot of people are like, pick one, you know, do the Amazon thing, right? Like it was just like, it's sort of a cultural value for be like, why would we not allow this thing to be used for this, these other people who need it and want to use it. Um, but I do think it is a kind of like a short term, long term thing. Like I think if you look at like Patreon is, is quite big and that's because they're able to serve like a sort of a much more diverse set of people. And I think to Nathan's point, I think a lot of people don't really identify strongly with a single vertical, right? They're like, I'm not really a, uh, journalist. I'm kind of a journalist, but I write some entertainment and I write some opinion stuff and I'm not like, I do some deep investigative stuff every once in a while or like, you know, I'm a, a musician, but I also sell sound packs. That's a common one is this sort of hybrid entertainer, educator model. We've seen a lot of that. Um, often the education stuff is the stuff that makes all the money. Uh, and then the, the entertainment stuff is kind of like the stuff that brings you the audience. Uh, and so I don't, yeah, it's, it's just a really interesting thing that I think people should, yeah, really kind of think about as they get into this is like, what kind of platform do you want to build? And, and most importantly, I think it's, it's, it doesn't have a high mode. You can get into this space really easily. And it's, so it's like, how do you, how do you sort of become top of mind? How do you become the thing? Like we have all the function, not all the functionality. We have a significant amount of newsletter functionality as a, as sub, as a sub stack. Right. Um, but if you're a writer, I mean, I'll tell people like you should go use Substack if That's your goal because they're better at it. Um, and so it's sort of important to, I think, you know, if you're, if you're second place in everything, <laughs> you're in, that might not be as good as just picking one and being number one. Right. Especially if you have that power line, all of these different. So it's Gumroad, you know, five years from now, it's like, Oh crap. Or maybe even Patreon. Right. It's like, Oh, it turns out like there was only fans for this type of content. And then like this new thing for, for, for this type of content and this thing for, you know, personal trainers have this and musicians have this. And, um, uh, and then there's also a lot of the technology shifts that have happened. I think, like the sort of even just like the front end tech stack has allowed for like much more dynamic experiences so that you can sort of like if you upload a video it looks like this if you upload a song it might look like this and so i think it's actually po more possible to build horizontal experiences 
Um, whereas before it was like, you know, you have to kind of have like each, each sort of like, you have a template and be like, what template do you want to use? Whereas like, I think it's a lot easier for different parts of the website to kind of reach into over here and be like, Oh, this is the, this person said that they're in the animation industry. And so we can kind of auto auto theme it in this way or, or like I've noticed small things like the way people communicate uh, file size. Like for example, if you're watching a video, you don't really care if it's 600 megabytes, but if you're downloading a, uh, you know, a zip file, like some software or something like that, or a photo pack, you really care. And so it really over time, I think, uh, you, you really want, you want to make sure that you, you have that really high quality product experience. And when you generalize too much, you kind right. of end up with this, like, people are like, oh, this isn't for me. This is for like people selling this other kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. My, my observation has been that in the creator ecosystem, I think a lot of initial attempts to build products and companies have been aligned to a specific content type. Like it's either make a paid video course or uh, a paid podcast or an email newsletter. Like they're aligned to a specific format of content rather than aligned to a specific persona of individual or a type of knowledge or skill that they have. Like business strategy and productivity yeah. uh, advice and I think together as newsletters on a... <laughs> right. And I think what, you know, what Ben Thompson has shown is that if you have a certain type of knowledge or skill that can actually be translated into a wide variety of different content formats. Like he has his blog, his newsletter, his podcast now. Um, like there's no one size fits all content type for a particular individual. And there's many different ways to productize that kind of knowledge. Um, and so where I'd like to see this whole ecosystem going is awareness of who the customer is, who the creator is, and all the different ways that they can best translate you know, their intangible skill set and knowledge into various products that would best suit their audience. Yeah. yeah like an overall jobs to be done kind of approach where it's like, I'm yes. interested in this goal in my life and then I'll download a file and I'll go to a live thing and I'll read some stuff and whatever all the things are. It's like, there's a goal that's motivating all of it. Yeah. I think there, there's sort of this interesting, like sort of three step process of when things go from sort of offline and like atoms to, to online bits, there's the the offline version and then there's sort of like the online version of the offline which is like oh you can it's a pdf right effectively it's a page-based document uh and then you have or paste whatever whatever it stands for page document format or something like that i assume and then you have like online version once everyone's made that transition you can now say oh we actually don't need pages like we can have reflowable documents we don't actually need, you know like we don't need we can have words and then there's like an inline video that you can click and play and so i think the next few years will be really interesting. You're starting to see this with some of the new startups coming out, like mm -hmm, and like um, all these weird, like social sort of new social AR audio apps that like, I think that it's not going to be like just subscribe to my newsletter. It's going to be like, you know, pay for this membership or this subscription or enter this room. And that sort of has all of these different things in it um, that we can't even imagine like what those content types might look like. And I think you're totally correct that the, the, the lines will totally, totally blur. There'll be, some of them will be single experiences. Some of them will be, you know, massive sort of uh, social experiences. Some of them will be text, video, audio, um, a sort of combination of those things. Um, some of them will sort of like, I think what's really interesting is the sort of synchronicity of live stream classes versus like async kind of classes, homework instruction, the sort of two way hasn't really been explored yet. There's like comments and things, a little bit of that, but I think there's going to be a lot more innovation there too. Um, even this webinar, right? It's going to be consumed in a bunch of different 
formats. You might listen to, there might be a transcription you could read. There's the live sort of version of it. There's the recorded on YouTube version of it. There might be like the Quibi version of it. Um, yeah. That's, you know, we're, we're there's, talking there's with. The, there's like the summary, the tweet storm summary of this, right? Like there's so many different ways to kind of consume each kind of thing. And I, I totally think the jobs to be done is, is a really great way to think about it. Yeah. Love we it. haven't thought of transcription, but that's a great idea. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, awesome. So let's switch gears and shift to audience questions. Um, all right, Nate, where should we start? There's yeah, we, we've got 18 of them. And I would like to like balance answering them well and answering everyone's questions. I don't so think I've we can answer of, everyone's questions. Yeah. 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 So I've been, I've been looking through one that we haven't touched on, but I think a lot of people are probably interested in is what are some of the best practices from the most successful creators on Gumroad? The Thank whole, you. The, off. Yeah. The, the most important thing I think people probably understand, but it, so it might be a frustrating answer is to just build an audience of like captive people who really value uh, your thinking. And, and not only value your thinking, but are like, they've actually gotten value out of your thinking, which I think is a little bit different. Like they, they, you can point to things like, oh, I did this differently in my life because, you know, I wrote this art, I read this article or I watched this video. Uh, I think there's an interesting sort of behavior ha that happens where people are often looking for an excuse to support someone. So they're not actually potentially paying like 30 bucks for an ebook. Uh, obviously, they don't know what's in the ebook, so it's hard to make that decision completely. Uh, they might have followed you for on Twitter for three years and they're like, Oh yeah, this person's has like clearly given me 30 bucks worth of value. I'll support them by buying this ebook. And so I think, uh, there's a lot of data that shows like the Obama campaign would do sort of experiments around donations and things like that. And they would, they would see a lot more conversion where they'd say, you know, if you donate a, a, this amount, um, you know, you get a free t-shirt didn't work at all. If you said you're, you, you know, you, you're paying 30 bucks for a t-shirt, they're like, through the roof. And so like the social financial contract sort of from predictably rational, like those sort of Dan O'Reilly ideas are also really compelling. I think Kickstarter did this really well where they took this kind of, they kind of created a financial contract around this sort of social contract and it worked really well. I think Patreon did similar things instead of saying, Hey, give me money. I want to go do this. It's like kind of weird. You're my friend, but it's like, Hey, I'm on Kickstarter. Check out my Kickstarter project. It's like, Oh yeah, here's 50 bucks. Um, you know, et cetera, GoFundMe are all these kind of examples. Cool. Um, I really like this particular question about, um, like, do you see Gumroad going down the path of helping creators dealing with the admin sides of their business, like accounting, um, or you know, I'm I'm now going beyond the initial question that was asked. Thank you, Russell, for that question. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, I think this is a huge need in the space where there's a lot of back office functionalities that people lose when they go independent and decide to become a creator, health insurance, um, yeah. taxes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So do you see Gumroad going into this or do you think that's a big opportunity? Yeah, I think it's a huge opportunity. I think it's an incremental one, right? So you want to make sure that you have scale on the sort of GMB side before you can start doing some of these things. But I totally think that in every, you know, you're seeing it with, with square capital, Stripe Capital, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, XYZ Capital, uh, effectively, like I think there is going to be definitely room to start sort of providing accounting, uh, sort of loans effectively, um, 
yet back office, tax accounting. As you know, as we mentioned in the beginning, you're not just a writer, you have to do kind of all of these things. And I imagine that over time we'll either partner with or build in-house like our version of your back office, your tax, like tax taxes is a thing every every year. What if we, you know, there was a sort of a 500 bucks and we would do it for you or 400 bucks would we do it for you? I think there is a lot. I think savings is also a really interesting kind of thing. Like what if you can say, actually, I, you know, just keep 10% of it and invest it for me or keep it here and it increases at this rate. Yeah, um, yeah. I think there's going to be a lot more collaboration between companies as well, because I think we just can't do it all. Right. And like that, that effort is getting duplicated. You're, it's getting duplicated yeah. at this company and this company and this company. And like maybe those three people should, you know, those three teams should actually be able to work together um, and provide right. a service to Square, to Stripe, to Gumroad, to Patreon, uh, to Teachable, et cetera. And I think that will probably start to happen. Uh, and, and we already get queries about that. I just think it's, again, it's early, right? The GMBs are small right. enough that I'm like, you know, we do 150 million a year in GMB. Like our revenue is around 10 million incremental, you know, what percentage of those creators are making above this amount and to the point where it would be worth it. It's a few hundred people probably, you know, but like when that's a few thousand people, all of a sudden a thousand bucks a year for this kind of premium service is now sort of incredibly, incredibly meaningful. Um, Yeah. And I think a lot of those services probably benefit from scale and economies of scale and being not just siloed in one particular creator company, but being able to serve creators across all of them. So I can see a lot of new companies being started in this space. Yeah. I love, can we, uh, should we do the next question? Cause we, we want to end promptly. So we have 10 more minutes. Um, Philip Thomas asks, what have you learned about price sensitivity among passion economy consumers? Consumer budgets are zero sum. What's the future here? Shout out to bundling. Shout out to you, Philip. <laughs> Honestly, I'm, <laughs> I, that's funny. Uh, I've, uh, I found honestly that there's, it's not really zero sum. It's really, uh, it technically is, right? Techni- technically there's like a finite amount of energy in the universe, right? So everything is technically zero sum to some level uh, at some point. But, but there is, a, I would say there is an unmet demand currently for education, for self-improvement, self-help, anything that you can effectively monetize at a later date. Uh, there's an unmet demand for it currently. So there is so much more opportunity, in my opinion, for supply. Um, there is going to be 10x the number of personal trainers. There's going to be 10x the number of vocal teachers. There's going to be 10, really anything. If you think about how many people want to learn something or, or, or learn about something, which is effectively what all content is doing, or, or, or be educated or be entertained, which is probably an even larger number, um, I think it's, 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 it's effectively... Uh, an infinite amount, right? Like Netflix could do 10 times the amount of Santa specials and, and, and it would still, they would all get a lot of consumption. People have a lot of time. I think this is the other thing that is sort of post COVID. I mean, already happening, but you know, currently people still have kids running around and stuff like that. I don't, I don't think people realize like how much time people really do have. If you just look at TV, right? There's this sort of famous stat of like the average American watches like three to six hours of TV a day or something like that mind-boggling and that includes just like having it on in the background or whatever i assume but that like think about how much of that has really gone to your phone uh, or or the things like the sort of equivalent on your phone it's probably a couple maybe one or two hours um there's a huge there's so much more right and yeah the whole point of innovation is to sort of free you from things right automation all these things are, are meaning that i can do my job in two hours instead of eight hours uh i can choose to work an additional two hours to make more money or i could uh, consume some cool content, read some stuff, 
like, I just, I, I really think like people, uh, people, there's, there's some, I think that there's a, there's a, a danger in thinking that like, Oh, there's too many of this kind of product. The other thing that people don't really realize is like someone could launch so almost identical sort of demographic to the everything bundle, but it's, it's a, it's like three or four different people and it would be, it would be fine. It would yeah. be really fine because and it's totally different. It's crazy. Like you can't make the same thing if you tried. If you, yeah, if you answer the question and I, and I answered the same exact question, we're in the scale of the 7 billion people or 8 billion people on planet earth. Like we're probably pretty similar. Right. Uh, uh, and we would have a totally different answer. Like humans are just so insanely different. Um, and so there's, I, I really think that it's not really zero sum. It really is like, um, you can, you, and, 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 and there, there are certain people that who absolutely like, like love what I say. And there are some people who absolutely don't. And, and that, and everyone has those people. And the beauty of the internet is you can just find those people. And as long as there's like a thousand of them, you're good to go. Right. You're probably fine. Yeah. Love it. The other lens that I like to bring onto this is I think a lot of creator led products represent low end disruption. So rather than being zero sum where like, instead of consuming X, you now consume Y from a creator. It's like, instead of consuming this thing that had been available before, like say traditional higher ed, you can now consume so many more courses that are creator led and developed by creators because they all are low end disruptions, meaning they address a segment of the market that hadn't been able to access what had been available before because it was too expensive or, or unaccessible to them. Um, so I think in that sense, there's also a lack of zero sumness. Yeah, I would add just really quickly, Harvard is going online. That's a $50,000 a year thing. Try to spend $50,000 a year on every single creator platform. I, would, I think you would, you, would, you would run out of creators before you run out of that $50,000. You would have to subscribe yeah. to back in Patreon and government to get even close. Um, obviously, you could do it. Um, but just you would, have, you would never run out of content to consume at that point, right? You'd have to write a script. To like, find, yeah, yeah, exactly. it would take too much time to find the individual. Well, I think that low end thing is like super, super spot on. You're not really going after like that. You're really being like, look, this. I don't need to go to Harvard for this one class. And like, what's the what's the hundred dollar version of this class? Oh, it's like this class taught on Teachable or this newsletter that I'm subscribed to, right? Um, it's yeah. There's there's so much opportunity. Yeah. Okay. Last question. And apologies to everyone whose questions we aren't getting to. I think all of our DMs are open, probably. Yeah. So you can DM any of us on Twitter and ask us your questions later. Um, so the last question that I think is really fascinating is, given that you have so many creators on the platform right now, how do you think about enabling collaboration between all of the creators? Just so that there's not only like two-sided network effects where fans are discovering new creators, but creators can actually, you know, create a situation where there's like one plus one equals five or more. Yeah. I mean, I think everything is an example of this happening. I think one of the best ways to sort of learn how to do it is to just see what people do. Uh, and then you're like, okay, I guess we should probably support that natively. Right. That's a sort of a really good sort of filter for, for what you should build. Uh, I think uh, when, going back to sort of building an audience being sort of the hardest and most important part uh, I think there's a huge sort of like that, that I think we'll see a lot of interesting stuff. Like I think affiliates is kind of an interesting way to tackle that problem where like, if you bring me a customer, you get some percentage. If I bring you a customer, I, you know, you get, there's, there's, I think going to be more opportunities for 
like this product is sort of sort of actually created by two people and this is the split that they get. That's a feature that we get requested pretty often that sort of technically wasn't even possible to build a few years ago, but now um, is because Stripe has launched some stuff and like it's, it's more easier to do that. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of those sorts, sorts of, uh, sort of, sort of opportunities. Um, I think building more of this sort of aggregation on the creator side where creators that make a certain amount can go into this forum and meet people and, and learn from each other. That's a whole opportunity. And there's a whole yeah. sort of segment of creators that are sort of now sort of like educating those folks. Um, I think, uh, there's a really fascinating, uh, potential for event organizers and people who are really good at, at sort of producing putting things together, they might not actually be like, I, we, we talked about this in that thread that you mentioned on Twitter a while ago, where there's certain people who are just like phenomenal at just like putting things together, curating a panel. Like you might organize uh, an event in, in sort of pre COVID era, like 300 people come and you can make a bunch of money by bringing doing all the work of getting all the people together. And, and so I think that's going to be a thing that we haven't really seen yet, which is there might be someone who doesn't write anything, but it's just phenomenal uh, at, 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 at sort of like putting putting some pieces together and, and they get sort of a percentage of, of, of that. Um, the sort of curation, I think, idea has a lot of, a lot of interesting uh, uh, sort of potential that hasn't really been explored yet. Effectively, the only thing I've seen is, is you can you know, create a wish list on Amazon and you get a tiny affiliate fee if someone buys through that, right? But it's not really built for that. Um, yeah. I think that's really sort of like a really interesting uh, angle potentially as well around that. Quickly, yeah. a cool example of that is the browser by Robert Cottrell, one of the best substacks in my estimation. And uh, he just reads a ton of stuff and has really specific taste and really great taste. And he's like, here's what I'm reading. And like, trust me, these are good. And they are always. <laughs> and people pay literally just for that. Like, yeah, you don't get access to the articles for... themselves. Yeah, it's like if you go, if you sort of sail around the planet Earth and you find some cool thing and you bring it back, like that's sort of like, you know, location utility, like that's worth a lot. Uh, and so effectively that's what they're doing in sort of digital world, right? It's just like saving people the time and money, which effectively is what teachers do, right? Like they go to school and they learn all these things uh, and then they can teach you in an hour, like, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, a set, a set of those things um, that will get you 80, 90% of the way there. And that's, that's sort of what you're effectively paying for. Yeah, I think TikTok houses are also an amazing example of this type of collaboration between creators and helping everyone to level up the quality of content that they're producing. Um, Nate and Often I very are deep actually, and intimate collaborations. Yes, TikTok houses. Nate and I are in a virtual Substack house together um, called Type House rather than Hype I've house. heard about this. <laughs> where we, you know, I think it helps a lot with elevating the quality of our writing and just like sharing a lot of knowledge about business practices, like how we do referrals, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I definitely see a lot of new platforms emerging uh, in future years to help creators actually better engage with each other and to all elevate like the quality of um, the content that they're producing. So with one minute left, I will start wrapping up. Thank you guys so much for attending. Next week, we are going to be joined by Greg Eisenberg, um, the founder of Islands, which was a consumer social network. And now he's at WeWork, or maybe he just left. Um, anyways, so he'll be joining the show next week to talk about consumer social and opportunities for vertical social networks. Um, but thank you guys so much. And thank you so much to Sahil for joining us today. It was such an interesting discussion. And I hope everyone enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. That was awesome.